In the New Testament, that psalm, the significance of it is explained in terms of the fact that Christ is raised. And because he's raised, if you were here this morning, we have the hope that he will make good on God's promise to bring justice in time. By no design on my part, that will very much overlap with where we are in our series in 2 Samuel. I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 3. One of the benefits, and there are a number of them, of working systematically through a book of the Bible is that it requires us as a congregation to deal with all kinds of subjects and relieves the consistory from the accusation that we are picking subjects to our own fancy. But also, I'm sure you've noticed this as we've been moving through 2 Samuel, it means touching at times on some very heavy things. By God's design, children are part of the covenant. They join with us. And last week, we saw a murder. This week, we continue in that murder, an unjust taking of human life. Now, in this evening's sermon, we look at David's response to it. Last week, if you weren't here, we saw something of the way that the murder of Abner by another general, Joab, for personal reasons, for vindictive reasons, challenges each one of us to ask what standard of severity we use whether it is submitted to the law of the Lord. Now this evening, we look at David's response, and we're going to see both positively and in some ways negatively how the Lord would have us to respond. Let's hear the word of the Lord beginning at verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers from Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern to Sirach. But David did not know about it, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else 
till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells with your people, and that especially as we submit ourselves to your word, you promise to work in us. We ask that you would form us more and more to have the heart of Christ, that we would love what he loves and hate what he hates, that we would walk in a way worthy of the gospel and of the kingdom to come, that our lives would reflect the presence of the king here even now in us. Work through the word this evening to that end, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you compare anyone to Jesus, of course, anyone in this age, any sinner, is going to fall very, very far short. doesn't matter how great they are, doesn't matter how good they are, they will fall short. On the other hand, when David is compared in the Bible to Saul, the king who reigned before him, and when David is compared to the kings of Israel in general, and to believers in general, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Relative to Jesus, of course, he has his shortcomings. David himself, at some point, after the place where we're at, is going to commit murder. He's going to commit adultery. In some ways, it's for our benefit that God should allow him to fall so far. Otherwise, we might think David himself came down from heaven. He had clay feet. He needed a savior too. But when we compare him against the other kings of Israel, we get a taste, more than almost all others, in some ways certainly more than all others, of what it is like to have Christ as your king. He is a man after God's own heart. When we consider his response in this text, we catch the beginnings of a glimpse of the justice of God, the love of justice. And the Holy Spirit through this text is calling you as those who are followers of Christ to desire and to walk according to a Christ-like love of God's justice. But also, we're going to be challenged here as we see some of the limits of human justice. In this story, you can't help but be drawn to the fact, in this life, fallen people cannot give you the justice that you want. Even the greatest of them, even a David cannot. And our eyes, in order that we don't become cynical, bitter, or vengeful, our eyes have to look beyond even the best in this world and look to Christ. Christ will make good. We saw that this morning. He is our true offspring of David. He will make good. And so we, as Christians, live in a place of tension. We love justice. We seek justice. But neither do we set before God a kind of bargain where we say, I will serve you if you bring justice in this life now. He will bring justice. This is the tension that we live in and that the Lord draws us into. 
Now, as we examine this passage, we're going to look at it under two main divisions. First, to look at that love, and then to look at the limits. And I'll announce each of them as we come to them again. But first, I want you to appreciate something. Before we come to those main divisions, appreciate something. Of everybody in Israel, millions of people, David had arguably the most reason to turn a blind eye to what Joab did. In different ways, David, it would seem, stood to benefit from Joab's murder of Abner. Abner was by far the most powerful figure in the opposing group with which they had had civil war for years. And that group, numerically, was far bigger than David's side. And there might have been a fear. Abner, who's always kind of been a mover, shaker, very cunning, that maybe he will stand at some point to be a rival to David. And you might think that there was some kind of relief in David when someone else did what he did not want to do. That maybe Joab even expected that David would sidle up at some point and say, look, thank you. I realize that was unpleasant, but somebody has to do that kind of stuff. Thanks. And then think of the fact that Abner was the leader over the forces that led to so many of the people David loved dying and suffering loss of every kind for years, civil war. It wasn't just that Asahel, who died in battle, was the brother of Joab. He's one of David's mighty men. He's listed in that list. He's somebody David picked, somebody that David tutored in war. And he died at the hand of this man, Abner. You might think of anybody to turn a a blind eye to this murder, it'd be David. But you don't see that here. In verse 35, you see that David deeply, deeply disapproves of this injustice. Verse 35, you see David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Literally, he's saying, may someone stab me in the stomach if I can stand to have anything in there so shortly after I hear this terrible, terrible news. And somebody could look at that and say, that's an overreaction. David's being emotional. That is exactly the reaction, as we see in this text, of someone who has God's heart, of the kind of heart that you want, not only in yourself, but especially in those who hold positions of authority and power, that they are disgusted at injustice, regardless of who commits it. And this is the first division then. First of all, we need to see that the Spirit is leading us to a love of justice. Justice as God calls it, And where is David getting this from? In the first place, his response is based on the fact that he has been bathed for years in the law of God and has received it spiritually by faith. Psalm 119, he says that in his heart he has hidden the law of God in order that he might not sin against the Lord. And if you desire to have justice in your heart, a love for it, that's not just something you sit down and decide that you care about it. If it's to be the kind of justice God has, you receive it by the Spirit through meditating on the Word. Not even just reading the Word, but meditating on the Word. Take an example of this, Leviticus 19.15, with which David was certainly familiar. Leviticus 19.15, the Lord says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, 
So the poor don't get an easier set of standards, nor shall you honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. The Lord loves equality before the law. He calls us to love equality before the law. And if you love what God loves, then you will grow to hate what God hates. And that's what happened in David. He detested the things that God hated. What does the Lord hate? Proverbs chapter 6 tells us. In fact, I invite you to look over at Proverbs 6. It's not far from where you are. Depending on your background, it can almost feel inappropriate to say that God hates anything. That's certainly not the case if you read the Bible. The Bible lists many things that the Lord detests, and they are rightly to be detested. Proverbs 6, 16 and following. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. An abomination, children, is something so bad that it goes beyond all description. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Bear in mind for a moment, we are all sinners. Innocence here means not worthy of the punishment or through the process that God has ordained among men. No one is innocent. It's not talking about that innocence before God, which is perfect. It's talking under the law and in society. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run for evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. If you go through that one at a time, that is a litany exactly describing what Joab did. From beginning to end, God hated what Joab did, and therefore David hates what Joab did. Now, what does that do in David? It manifests itself in a way. It doesn't just live in his heart. It will have consequences for how he responds, even as it will in you. If you love what God loves and hate what God hates, it will manifest itself in the world in concrete ways. In the first place, you see that he does not hesitate to condemn publicly this injustice. Verse 33, it says, The king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. You have not been found guilty of anything worthy of death. You are not being held as some criminal who's been put through the process. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. He does not hesitate to condemn it. And in David's position as an official, he especially has a responsibility to do so publicly. By the way, I want to be clear. I am not saying that in every instance where you perceive an injustice, therefore you must bring that to the most public venue, whether online or otherwise. That's not specific advice. Every situation is different. Everyone occupies a slightly different role and position in society. But, especially as a ruler here, and then with implications for all of us, 
He doesn't hesitate to condemn it. And sometimes there's the opposite reaction. We fear to condemn things even that we believe are wrong. We fear to say that was wrong. We lock ranks because we're afraid of how that's going to undermine authority. Not appreciating that failing to call out evil undermines authority. Moreover, you see in verse 31, he does not hesitate to mourn the victim of injustice. Verse 31, it says, King David followed the bier. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. He's walking behind the person who was previously his greatest enemy, humanly, and yet David is leaning the train of the mourners. This is not David's way of saying everything Abner did was okay. He's mourning the injustice done. He realizes that in this assassination of Abner, something else has been struck. The very fabric of trust that is built up over time in a community that people play by the rules God has given to us. And so he's not mourning Abner as sinless, but he is mourning this death as unworthy of that man. And he's not hesitating, he's not ashamed to mourn publicly over that. Now, why does God set this before you? Why is this a part of the word? The Bible, to our benefit, records the messiness of life in this age. And it provides, in these historical books especially, opportunities I've mentioned before. It's like holding up a jewel with many facets, opportunities to consider what the word says as a whole on different subjects. Here, in the first place, it's presented so that you will seek a heart of justice. Inwardly, the Lord wants you to love this. And I will be candid with you. Even thinking through this sermon in the past week, I've had to wrestle just thinking for examples of injustice in the world has put me at times, going back to last week's sermon, having to temper severity. But we have to wrestle with it. The Lord wants you to share his heart that we do not approve of evil, no matter who it comes from that we would practice it ourselves, and that we would be prepared ahead of time for what if the Lord calls you into a position of authority, maybe as an elder in the church, maybe as a city council person, maybe as a judge. We have many young people here. I know that some of them have thought about maybe they're going to be in law. You prepare now to have that kind of heart. But even then, think about this. The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, do you not realize that you will sit in judgment over angels? And if that's your high calling, then now we should be striving to have a Christ-like love of the good, a detestation of that which is evil. And that should cause us to seek to reign over sin in us, to see that where there is a temptation to act unjustly, we crush it. If you can't be faithful in the small, how will you in the big? But also, and especially in this text, as it wasn't David who did the injustice, but he's calling it out, It means that we disapprove and voice that appropriately of those who do evil. This is where the Christian, the truly spiritual, the maturing Christian, walks an extremely fine line at times. We are called in the scripture to honor, for instance, the magistrate, and to honor the eldership, the consistory that is placed up in the church. On the other hand, we are called to honor God above these institutions where he has placed fallen human beings. You look back in the scriptures, 
you can't evade the fact that it's not just robbers on the highway who do evil. It's Egyptian authorities who are putting children to death in Exodus. It's the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, who kill Stephen. Jesus himself, illegitimately murdered by the Roman authority. The Christian walks in this tension where, on the one hand, we, of all people, uphold standards of justice and believe in the institutions. But of all people, we are positioned by the Lord as lights and salt in the world to speak against corruption, to speak against abuse of power. Power is not the same thing as authority. Someone may have authority and yet use power wrongly. Revelation 21 verse 8 places cowardly alongside murderers in the lake of fire. And there's a temptation, of course, at times to not bring up the injustice that we see. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's hard because we don't want to undermine confidence in institutions, especially as children are here. On the other hand, if we never address it, we raise bigger problems in the future. One of the blessings that came out of the Protestant Reformation One of the blessings that has flowed into many parts of the world is the establishing of systems of checks and balances, the likes of which most of history has never seen. The American Revolution at the time when it was occurring was described by people in England as a Congregationalist or as a Presbyterian revolt. And part of that was because they saw that these colonists had a strong desire to put all of these checks and balances into position. One of the reasons that the colonists wanted that, though, and what they had in common as Presbyterians and Congregationalists, is a doctrine of depravity. People are fallen. People sin. And when we, of all people, know that, we have to be willing to speak up, whether it be pastors who abuse authority, elders, police, military, up to the highest level of generals, presidents, Again, the purpose of this sermon is not to elaborate the appropriate venue for each of those things. But it means that we don't lock ranks and refuse to acknowledge evil. It must be acknowledged. It must be dealt with. And so this story in the first place exposes the limits of justice. At a later point, we're going to see how it actually has ramifications too. David's failure to respond to this in the full way that he could will have an effect But here at this point, we need to look at one other idea. We've seen that the Lord calls us to a love of justice. It also exposes us again to the limits of justice. It's very important that we be reminded from the word of this and that our children hear it too. Even a David falls short of bringing the justice that we desire. This is our second main division again as we look at the limits Think about David's duty. He is the king of Israel. He's not just some private person who has a thought about what Joab should have done. And he had a duty under the Lord. And his duty in scripture is very clear. Genesis 9 verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, speaking of murder, 
By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That's creational, by the way, or it's in the time prior to the law. This is just part of the world as God set it up, part of justice as we know it. But it's reaffirmed in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, verse 24. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. David knew the law frontward and backward. Joab struck down his neighbor in secret. When it says cursed, it's speaking of the curse of death. And David, as the representative of God's executive authority in his people, had a responsibility to bring that judgment. Deuteronomy 19, verse 13. Your eye shall not pity the guilty, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well for your land. According to Romans 13, the civil magistrate does not hold the sword in vain. That means they actually use it. But in David's hand, it seems like it's hanging their limp because he doesn't do any of these things. How does David respond? The most that we see here is that, one, he forces Joab and his accomplices to publicly mourn. Of course, David can't make Joab feel that in his heart. But he at least will not stand for Joab outwardly to gloat over the crime. I guess that's a step, that's progress. And then secondly, David calls upon God in a prayer to bring God's judgment in his time upon the guilty. And not just the guilty, but against all of his descendants. Matthew Henry's commentary is poignant here when he says, David would have done far better to call down God's wrath upon the guilty here and not everyone but him. What limited David? I would suggest owing to the fact that we can't know for certain in this text what limits David, that it could be any one of a number of things that limit justice in our own time. And the Lord would have you to be aware of these limits and to push back against them as you are able. It may have been that David was fearing the power and the popularity of Joab and his brothers. Remember, Joab is extremely powerful. He's the highest ranking official basically after David. And he's well connected. His brothers are all military men as well. We can imagine that they are wealthy, not just militarily powerful. And David may have a fear that this is just going to divide the kingdom even further. The Bible tells us, first of all, do not fear man. Fear God. Do not fear those who can destroy your body. Fear God who can destroy your soul and your body in hell. Part of me says that's so much easier to say in the pulpit than when you are facing for your life to stand up against powerful foes. On the other hand, again, Revelation 19, the lake of fire is suited to the coward. We're not saved by our righteousness, but we should want to be nothing like the people in that list. It may have been that David felt that Joab was simply irreplaceable or that he was such a good friend to him, he couldn't now do that. And that's how it works on a smaller level sometimes. Maybe it's as simple that you are at work and you find that one of your coworkers is stealing and you don't want to say anything because you actually like the person. You know that you know, the boss doesn't give him a great wage, so you don't want to say anything. You can find all kinds of excuses for sin. Sin just spins out. It's like a never-ending spool of excuses. We have to judge things by God's word. 
Again, Proverbs 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You can't make justification for sinners or for your own sin for that matter. I am open, however, and probably my preference is to think that something else plays a role in staying David's hand. Again, this is a man after God's own heart, and the text doesn't set it up to lay the blame on David. If anything, it does the opposite. It's from this point that people start to notice that David is truly the king overall. It seems as I examine the text carefully, and I submit you to do the same, David may have been well aware that he did not have the evidence necessary to hold these men to account. He knows what happened. He's pretty convinced. But if this is brought before court, who will be the witnesses? Joab did this in secret in the gate. Deuteronomy requires at least two witnesses to bear testimony. Who's there with Joab? His brothers are there with Joab. David probably realizes the guilt, but his hands are tied. And if he tries to do this and people say, well, what's your evidence? Now he's starting off his reign seeming like he's a tyrant, like he's just taking and wielding power according to his word and not according to the law. Calls for witnesses. There are limits that at times tragically, painfully butt up against your desire to do good. Even a David faces that. And some of the consequences are going to be, we're going to see in later weeks, there is a string of assassinations and revenge killings that crop up after this. And it does raise the question, is it that people are seeing, you can get away with this, of Ammon, Ishbosheth, Absalom, different people all murdered, some by Joab himself, when justice is not held out. What do we then do with this? And I bring us to this by way of conclusion. We've seen that we're called to love justice. On the other hand, you run into limits. What do we do with this? What is the Lord calling us to? Through this passage, the Spirit is preparing you not to be staggered by the shortcomings that you will observe in those in power. And I speak especially to the young adults here. If it hasn't already happened, there will be times where the the scales come off your eyes, where you realize These institutions that we are called to uphold, whether in the church, outside of the church, fail. People that you thought were utterly upright fail. And you cannot be staggered in your faith in Christ to think that the Lord is not faithful because this happened. This has been happening forever. Ever since sin, anyway. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher official, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Everybody can rationalize up to the very top how this is going to actually bring about benefit. And you shouldn't be shocked when the lower level people do lock ranks. We don't accept it. We speak against it. But neither does that throw your faith into upheaval. It has been the case that people have left the church 
left profession of faith in Christ or refuse to have anything to do with Christians because they see inequities take place. Do not be shocked. Do not be amazed. And furthermore, the Lord points you beyond all of these people to Christ himself. You think of where later in the story, you may be aware of this. At some point, maybe we'll see. We'll get there. As David is on his deathbed, he tells his son Solomon to do some things. One of the things he tells him is, kill Joab. And he, it's not vindictiveness. It's essentially, I think you can do it at this point. It's probably that David believes, now with what happened with Absalom, we have what we need. Go after it. Bring him down. Start your reign upholding justice. David could not bring justice, but Solomon could. In a much, much more satisfying way, Christ Jesus will bring justice for all the oppressed. For all of his people, there will be a vindication, a repayment. And for those even outside who experience injustice, God is not going to be unjust toward them. What was done wrong to them will still be brought to account for those who did evil. Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes or in mortal men in whom there is no salvation. Verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. In other words, he's got the power and he made a promise. Who executes justice for all the oppressed. Verse 9, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked will bring to ruin. Look beyond Christ in those things. Brother, sister, I appeal to you in the word. Do not collapse into cynicism. Do not collapse into despair. Things can be better than they are. History is full of the evidence of that. God's goodness is so great that societies can be reformed. Here in this city, it, I, God, help us not to be a part of whatever churches may draw back and say, well, because I'm a Christian, I, I'm so focused on what I do in my spiritual calling that I'm not going to play a role in my city. Your neighbors need salt and life, salt and light. Some of us surely will have some role, whether it be with councils. Some of us will be police. Some of us may be commissioners. Some of us may be lawyers. Some of us may be judges. We can't let the imperfections of this fallen world paralyze our commitment to doing good in Christ's name. If you don't have any of those public roles, nevertheless, you have a private role. Hear this word, and then we'll close in prayer. Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we look for even a few moments with open eyes at the dark things done in the world on a daily basis, if we 
allow even for a second the callous that we have carefully constructed to protect our emotions, if we let that come back to feel the agony, the pain of those who suffer injustice throughout the whole world, oh Lord, we would break down upon our knees and cry like David, and all food would taste bitter. We thank you that Christ went to the cross to make an end forever of sin, to take it away. We thank you that you have reached into this world to draw to yourself unworthy people who have put in the same positions as others would in all likelihood fall. And we pray that you would preserve us, Lord, from temptation and deliver us from evil. Oh God, we pray that if we should ever be in a position where it is necessary to speak out or to act, that you would give us courage, that you would temper it with your wisdom. We pray for this church that you would preserve the consistory from all scandal, that we would never form ranks to abide any evil. Lord, may we be a people who brings you pleasure, come what may. Give us a spine in Jesus Christ, for he was raised. In his name we pray. Amen.